Morning, Mission Church. Morning. If you would grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. As you're turning, even as we've already prayed, allow for me to pray again. Father, I pray again. Father, we come humbling ourselves before you. Realizing today that every person in this room comes with a perspective. And Father, we want to humble our perspectives under yours. Father, teach us today. Help us to wrestle with and come to grasp a little bit more your perfection, your holiness, your graciousness, your faithfulness to us. Oh God, please. Would you bring with clarity today the purposes that you have for this text? Transform us today. May you and your word and your truth be lifted high above everything else in this room we pray today. In Jesus' name. And all of Mission Church said? Amen. Amen. All right, we are in week three of our series on the life of Moses. We've called this series Courageous Calling. Courageous Calling, finding our strength in God. The word calling in the scriptures is the word kaleo. It speaks of someone uh, to authoritatively summon someone else. And so my opening question for you today to ponder is this. How have you been processing the call of God on your life? Not a rhetorical question, one that I would desire for you to ponder in this moment. How have you been pondering a God's call on your life? We've taken the time to point this out, that God is indeed calling every person who is, who is within the sound of my voice and beyond. And so I ask you, how are you pondering God's general call upon all of creation? His call to turn to Him. How have you processed this glorious, efficacious call when Jesus Christ's provision was applied to your heart, though the Holy Spirit prompted you to bend your knee and accept Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you taken a moment this past week just to meditate? That you are among those who were chosen in ages past to re be redeemed and justified to the glory of God. How are you processing God's technical call in your life, God's specific call on your life? How are you processing God's life work, your life work in relation to God's calling? You see, the way that we go about processing God's call in our lives has a lot to do with our own personal perspectives. Our perspective on God, our perspective on ourselves, our perspective on our world all goes about coloring how we go about wrestling with the truth of God as it's applied to our hearts. When's the last time you stopped to consider your perspective on the greater things of life? A perspective. A perspective, it's a noun. You can perceive, that is the action, but perspective in and of itself is a noun. It is, it is something that we all possess. It is something that we all possess. Indeed, it is something that you possess many of. Indeed, it is, something, it is something that you possess that you, many of you in this room, desire to share quite regularly on many things. 
a perspective. It's one's view on a matter based upon our observations, our knowledge, and our experience. On our knowledge, on our understanding, and upon our experience. It becomes our perspective, does it not? It's our perspective. A perspective is a powerful thing. At the end of the day, boiled down, a perspective is simply how we see things. How perplexing is our perspective at times? Think about perspectives. Our perspectives can be positive or they can be negative perspectives. Think of the power of a positive perspective. Think of the power of a negative perspective. Your perspective can be loving. Your perspective can be hurtful. And indeed, it can be both of those things at the exact same time. Your perspective can be unifying. Your perspective can be divisive. Your, this, your perspective can be well-intentioned, yet unproductive nevertheless. Your perspective can be intelligent, and yes, indeed, your perspective can be uninformed. <gasps> Gasp. Are you willing to admit today that your perspective might be limited? Careful. Uh, if you are willing to admit that your perspective might be limited, your brain um, and your way and your will is about to be challenged. How is it that we can be so convinced that our perspectives are spot on and yet in the end come to realize that our perspectives needed to be broadened? This is a very simple uh, illustration that I hope will work for you. Uh, for example, um, what color do you see? If you maybe just on a count of three, if we would all just, would you participate with me? Say yes if you're willing, say yes. yes. If you see more than one color, feel free to yell that out, but the people in the middle might not like you. All right, so on a count of three, uh, why don't you just yell out all the colors that you see? Go ahead, one, two, three. My word, what a divisive room. Because the fact of the matter is, depending on where you are sitting in this room, if you are looking front, you are indeed seeing, tell me, red. If you're off to the right, perhaps you're privileged in this section to see more than one color. What colors do you see over here? Red and ugly green. Red and puke green, as a matter of fact. What does this poor section only see? Oh, alas, puke green. Over here, perhaps, uh, you only see what? You only see what? Come on, tell me. Well, no, them. But you can see red and blue if you want. I was going to get to you in just a second. <laughs> you see, from my perspective, guess, guess what color I see? Maybe, maybe one of the camera angles already picked it up for you. But from my perspective, I see white. And I also see a, a better shade of green. But what I want you to capture today is this, is that even from God's perspective, he could see the bottom of the box as well. At one time, God saw red, God saw white, God saw green, God saw this wretched color that he created, although it must be glorious to him. Our perspectives are limited by our view. What's my view right now? My view right now looks like this. This is what I see. 
I wish at times you could have a glimpse of what I see, and now my wish has been fulfilled. (laughs) And oftentimes I wonder, I wonder what they see when they look back at me. What is it that they see? Here's what you see in case you didn't know what you saw. Whoa. Have you stopped to consider what God sees in this moment? If you're trying to find the camera, it's hidden. (laughs) Is that all God sees? Come on, is that all God sees? Is that all God sees? Is that all he sees? The people in the back know that that's not all that God sees. They'd probably play it again if they really wanted to, right? Couldn't you just click that again? Would you click that again in the back? Would you start it all over again, would you? I want you to stop and ponder that God sees every side of the box. I want you to stop and ponder that God sees everything I can see. God can see everything you can see, and God can see everything all at once. Friends, today we're going to contemplate God's perspective. Today we're going to contemplate this reality that God sees all things. God knows all things. God is sovereign over all things. Matthew chapter 10 says this, God knows and God has counted every hair upon your head. And for some of you, that was an easy count. (laughs) So if that doesn't impress you, know this, that even as God knows the numbers of hairs on your head, Psalm 147 said he also knows all of the stars in the sky and he can call them by name. You see, our God, he knows the thoughts that are in your mind, Psalm 139. Even before the world, the word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Not only does the Lord know my next word, he knows the leaders of this world's next move. For the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of God. He turns it wherever he wills. And listen, this is, this is just a glimpse This is just a glimpse of what our God sees in every moment of every day, of every month, of every year, of every eternity that has passed. So listen, if you ever question whether God can call and use you, when you read the verse in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, that he who has called you is faithful, you can take it to the bank. You see, we can be confident that he most certainly will call and fulfill his call upon our lives because Psalm 33, verses 13 through 15 says this, the Lord looks down from heaven and he sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashioned the hearts of them all. He observes all of their 
feet. You see, it's very natural for us to process our calling in light of our own perspective. But today, the proposition is very clear. It's very straightforward. It's very simple, and it's this. If you are going to begin to wrestle with God's call on your life, it is much more effective for us to consider our calling from Him, from His perspective. And so, if you're ready to gain confidence in God's perspective and be willing to admit that your perspective may need to be stretched, just come on and go ahead and say, I want to see it. Go ahead. I want to see it too. Exodus chapter 4, here's where we are. For those of you who are new to Mission Church, and I see so many of your faces this morning, uh, here's where we are. The story of Moses is indeed is a popular story. Even if you're not familiar with church or you come to church very regularly, this is a name you probably recognize. Here's where we are in the story. Already to this point, Moses was born to godly parents in the land of Egypt while uh, they were captive there. Moses was saved from an edict that called for the death of all Hebrew boys. His mother placed him in a basket in the Nile River, and God providentially protected him and enabled him to be found by Pharaoh's daughter, who indeed did adopt him. For 40 years now, Moses has grown up in a house of privilege. At the age of 40 or so, uh, he had a midlife crisis of sorts. He goes out and he sees an Egyptian roughing up one of his... Hebrew brothers, and he loses his temper, and he murders the man, and he buries him in the sand, and Pharaoh finds out, and so Moses now has to flee to the wilderness, and he ends up in this land called Midian, and there in Midian, he is befriended, and he takes a wife, and he settles down for 40 more years. You see, we watched on last week as God took a man who was somebody in Egypt, who grew over 40 years to be a somebody, And then he wrestled with him over another 40 years in the middle of nowhere to make him a nobody that he could actually call and use. And so last week, we studied Moses receiving God's call. Last week, we looked on and we saw ourselves, if you will, in the mirror of Moses' life. And we watched on as God crushed the insecurities that prevented Moses the excuses that welled up in his heart to say, God, not me. What did you see in the mirror this past week, by the way? God obliterated the insecurities. He wants to obliterate yours as well. But even in light of the insecurities that were dealt with, there are still some practical concerns that have to be heavy on Moses' mind. I mean, just stop and consider it. You get a vision from God, if you will, a voice coming out of a bush telling you that you need to pack up your family, leave everything you've built and known in the last 40 years and head back to Egypt where you're a fugitive. I mean, come on. You got a couple of things on your mind right now? Let's start with the most dangerous one. The most dangerous thing, the one that could really cost us our life. And you're probably thinking that I'm going to speak about him being a fugitive. No, not at all. The most dangerous thing Moses had to do next was go talk to his father-in-law. Pick up the text. We're in chapter 4, verse 18. God had just heard the voice of the Lord. 
He was just told in verse 17, come on now, take in your hand the staff, which will be your sign. And so off he goes, journeying back from the Mount of Sinai over now to Midian. And there he says, Moses went back to Jethro, went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and he said to him, just stop right there. Like, how is this conversation going to go? So, um, dad, um, uh, I was out tending the sheep, um, okay, your sheep, which I've been doing for the last 40 years. And as you know, I went to maybe one of my favorite spots. I was on the Mount of Sinai, the Mount of God. And here's, here's the thing, Dad. Um, I heard the voice of God. You did? Where did you hear it? It was coming out of a bush. What? No, 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 not, not just any normal bush. Not just any normal. It was a bush that was on fire, and it was not being consumed. Oh, in that case... Allow me to entertain your very sane request. It turns out then that um, perhaps Moses didn't even need to get into that level of detail. Look at the passage. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Please let me go back to Egypt to my brothers, to see whether they are still alive. Such a persuasive request. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. How many of you in this room wish that conversations with your father-in-law or your in-laws went that smoothly? Really? That's, that's it? Yeah, sure. Take, take my daughter. Take my grandkids. Head on over to the place where you're a wanted man. I mean, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? Think about all the things that God put into place in this very moment. I want you to stop and think about the legitimate practical weight that was on Moses' heart and mind potentially in this moment. You see, what I want you to gain is this. We can gain strength in God's perspective when you come to realize and anticipate that God is continually gracious. You see, if God has called you to it, you've heard this quote before, certainly not original to me, God will lead you through it. God's going to clear the deck. God's going to make the way. Look at the way that Moses submitted himself. This, this fascinates me, by the way. So here you are, burning bush, voice of God. He's called you already. You know what's before you. You know what you need to do. You do need to understand, while this conversation with Moses' father-in-law was brief, think about how profound that sentence really was. The God of all gods, the great authority of all things said, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go, and he can go. He could have come to his father-in-law and said, yo, peace out. God has called me, and I'm leaving. I don't know who's going to tend your sheep tomorrow, but I know this. I want you to notice how Moses submitted himself, even in light of God's calling. I want you to note how God, because Moses was obedient to God's calling, and then he also followed after God's principles. 
Yes, I know Jesus in his own words said you ought to be willing to leave father and mother, but that does not leave honoring and respect to father and mother behind. And so one of the ways, what a great confirmation of God in this moment that Moses was able to go to his father-in-law, ask such a short question of him, and for him to say this, go in peace. Oh, how some of you wish you heard those words from your parents as you put your request before them. You see, if God calls you, he's going to clear the way. And what I want you to notice is this. Look at the next verse. And the Lord said to Moses while in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Moses asked for his father's blessing before he knew the coast was clear. Moses began to pack his bags and make preparation, and he took steps of faith, and indeed he took risks before he knew for sure. In a sense, indeed, he did step out on the cliff not knowing. If dry ground was going to be there for, to catch his feet. And what I want you to notice is this. When God calls you, it is going to be a step of faith. When God calls you, indeed, you need to follow his principles and provision, but he didn't know what his father-in-law was going to say, and he didn't know that the coast was already clear in Egypt. But he knew that he knew that he knew that God had called him. Is God calling you? When's the last time you stepped out in faith and obedience to the Lord? A conversation that you've been putting off, a coworker that you know has opened the door to hear the gospel. Moses took the step of faith and God cleared the way. Friends, this is courage. It takes courage to submit yourself It takes courage to face the consequences of your past. It takes courage to face the consequences of your past. But God might be calling you to face the consequences of your past. And I'm not promising you that in doing so, that God is going to say the same words to you that all of those seeking to kill you or take you down are dead. Nevertheless, you'll never know. Oh, for our consciences to be clear to this end. And so verse 20, Moses takes his family. I want you to think about the gravity of this moment. Let's not forget at the end of chapter 2 how Moses was content. He finally found contentment. But even so, he named his son a sojourner knowing that this wasn't his home. And so Moses took his wife and his sons and he had them ride on a donkey and he went back to the land of Egypt. And he took the staff of God. And he took the staff of God. He took the humble rod, the humble staff of God on his hand, in his hand, and he moved. Now verse 21. And then Moses, then the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that 
you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. I, I love this. I just love thinking about envisioning this, you know, all those miracles like staff on the ground, snake, ah, you know, and then picking it back up and turning it back into a staff and then putting the hand in his coat. Remember, he's going to pull out, whoa, and then putting it back in and it's going to, it's all normal again. Remember this? Dripping some water on the ground and turning to blood. Go back and do all of these signs. Do all the miracles that I have put in your power, but, but watch, I will harden his. Who's his? Who's his? Anyone know who his is? Pharaoh. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So that he will not let the people of God go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve if you refuse, let him go, and behold, I will kill your firstborn. Come on, pastor, where in the world, what happened to point one? Like, what happened to our God is continually gracious. You see, for God to be continually gracious, our God also has to be completely holy. And if you're going to find strength in the calling of God in your life, if you're going to find strength, you have to affirm that God is completely holy. And it's out of his holiness that he extends graciousness. Our God is completely holy and he extends grace upon the just and the unjust. You see, as a holy God, our God must stand against unrighteousness. You see, our God, to be holy, it means to be sacred. It means to be set apart. It means to be revered. God is endlessly and always perfect in all that he is and all that he does. John MacArthur writes this. Of all the attributes of God, holiness is the one that most uniquely describes him. And in reality is a summation of all the other attributes. The word holiness refers to his separateness, his other than this. The fact that he is unlike any other being indicates his complete and infinite perfection. You see, holiness is the attribute of God that binds all other together. You see, holiness, the holiness of God is all of the other attributes of God fully applied. When God is fully merciful and fully just and fully loving, when God is all of these things all at once, that is holiness. And you see, God's plan as a holy God is to redeem and make all things holy again. Romans 8, 20, verse, Romans 8, 20 and 21, for the creation was subject to futility, not willing, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Adam sinned, but in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Can you wait for that day? You see, God's going to make all things holy, including you and me, and he's actually calling you and I to be holy right now. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 says this, but as he who called you is holy... You also, you also, come on, be holy in your conduct. 
since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. God is holy and he's called us to be holy as well. Listen, God in his holiness must repudiate depravity. He must punish sin and he must eliminate all things evil. Ultimately, that's where this thing is going. Friends, this is why the discipline of the Lord in our lives is such, is such a grace. Call it a severe grace if you must. But Hebrews chapter 12 says this, for our fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to him. But he, our God, disciplines us for our good, that we must share his holiness, that we may share his holiness. Do you see it? For the moment, for the moment, all discipline seems painful and rather, rather than pleasant. But, but later, but later it's going to yield peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, in this situation, God is going to repudiate sin. He's going to stand against sin. He's going to put evil in its place. And as well, he's going to discipline those he loves. He's going to do all of these things at the same time. How's he going to do it? Look at verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go, come on, do all the miracles. Do all the miracles, and then, and then, and then, they're going to be awesome Who wouldn't believe a, a staff becoming a snake? Who wouldn't believe a hand becoming leprous and then healed? Who wouldn't believe? But I will harden his heart. But I will harden his heart. But I will harden his heart. Are you telling me that Pharaoh's not even going to have a chance? Really? Pastor, come on. Say something. This doesn't sound fair because it's not. This doesn't sound fair. Because it's not. Pharaoh deserves so much worse than a hardening of his heart. You and I deserve so much worse than God staying his hand and not allowing us to drop dead in our seats. Pharaoh deserves so much worse in this moment. But here, God is going to use Pharaoh as an instrument to fulfill his providential plan. Like, come on, my heart's still struggling with this. My heart's, my heart, my heart. Pastor, my heart. My gracious heart. Let's not forget that like the Pharaoh before this one, you would have gladly strung up last week for calling for the death of all the firstborns. Our perspectives, 
Our perspectives are so limited. And we see one side of the box, and we see one color, and we can see one direction at a time. But here, but even so, let me help you. I hope this will help you. First and foremost, you've got to understand the definition of hardened. Come on, put your thinking caps on and get your pens moving. You'll come back to this later in life, I hope. Hardened. It means, to, it means perseverance, persistence, to be unyielding and to be stubborn. And you all have some hardened hearts at home? Anybody have some persistent children? Anyone have some stubbornness going on, maybe even in your own hearts? Here's what I want you to gather. By definition, this isn't the worst attribute in all of the world. It all depends on your perspective and where you're applying your stubbornness to. Old Testament scholar R.E. Cole says this, hardened here does not refer to emotion as it does in English. Hardened here does not refer to emotion as it done in English, as it does in English, but it refers to the mind. It involves the will. It involves intelligence and response. You see, hardening here is not a matter of morality. The hardening here is not a matter of turning Pharaoh's heart towards sin. You see, God does not harden Pharaoh's heart to sin. God hardens Pharaoh's heart in sin. Come on. You got to get your head around this. God is not hardening or turning Pharaoh's heart to sin. He's hardening and he's stiffening Pharaoh's heart in sin. How do we know? Because James chapter 1 says this, let no one say that he is tempted, that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. God does not cause Pharaoh. God does not make Pharaoh sin. Pharaoh's heart was already inclined. Pharaoh's heart was already, already hardened. But watch, watch, watch. Here it comes. I will harden his heart. Come on, get around this now. There's nothing to get around. 20 times in the book of Exodus, you are going to see this phrase regarding the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. 10 times, 10 times God, it says, hardens Pharaoh's heart. On the 10 other times, it says that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Here we have the cosmic tension, do we not? Of God's sovereignty and man's free will. What I want you to note is this. The first two times that it's spoken of Pharaoh's heart being hardened, 421, which we just read, and 7.3, it's in the future tense. God says, I will harden his heart. Chapter 7, verse 13, 14, 22, 8, 15, 19, 32, and 9.7. Next, next up on the biblical theology screen is Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Come on, you got to read the whole thing. You got to read the whole thing. God will harden his heart. I will. It's future tense. The next thing we read then is Pharaoh actually hardening his own heart. And then chapter 10, verse 1, verse 20, verse 27, 11, 10. Indeed, God hardens his heart. Again, here we stand in the cosmic tension of God being fully sovereign, but you and I being 100% responsible for every choice that we make. It's a tension that we all must live with. It's not a debate that theologians must iron out. It is merely 
a piece of the gospel that we all must live in tension regarding. What you have to realize is to the Hebrew mind, this was not a tension at all. They would read this passage and have no issue with what's being said. Again, Old Testament scholar R.E. Cole writes this. Follow closely with me. The Hebrew writer did not even see a problem here. To him, God was the first cause of everything. Without in any sense denying the reality and the moral responsibility of the human agent involved. You see, the same train of thought will allow the Hebrew to see the crossing of the Red Sea as due to God's sovereign action for sure. And yet, as due to a conjunction of tide and wind, you see, these are not mutually exclusive explanations, nor even equally valid alternative explanations. To the Hebrew, they are the same explanation phrased differently. What he's saying is this, because God is the first cause of everything, I will stand before you and say this, gravity, gravity is going to make this box hit the floor. Gravity is going to make the box hit the floor. It's the same thing as saying God made the box hit the floor. Because he's the first cause of all things. Pastor Jerry kicked the box across the stage. God is the first cause of all things. I am responsible for kicking the box, but nevertheless, I understand that God is the first cause of all things. Here is the tension. And so to the Hebrew mind, to say that Pharaoh hardened his heart was to believe that God is working out a divine plan and he hasn't left his throne. Get it? Anybody's head hurt? I wish you could have studied this with me this week. Smoke like was pouring out of my ears. May we not become trite or flippant in our theological explanations. May we not drive by at a high speed trying to deflect people's attention from a holy God. Let us not defend our God. Let us simply, simply teach what the scripture says. Nevertheless, Moses goes to Pharaoh. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, watch, watch, watch. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Who's going to talk? Moses is going to talk, but, but who? But who is he speaking on behalf of? God. I want you to go to Pharaoh right now and say, Israel is, when you get there, tell him Israel is my firstborn. And what you got to catch right now is this. For that to be spoken to Pharaoh would have infuriated him. This indeed, if you follow R.A. Cole's explanation of how God will use circumstances to direct his path. This could be the very moment when Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And how did God go about hardening his heart? Through the declaration that Moses spoke to him. It's not like God had to go in and tinker and kind of move parts around to make Pharaoh's heart hard. He said, go and say this. Watch what happens. He will harden his heart. You see it? I hope that helps. 
in my view, this is where Pharaoh heard these words, chose, became irate, and chose. And as God being the first cause, got it? You need to wrestle with these things for yourself. Tell him. Tell him Israel was my firstborn. Pharaoh would have believed that he was the only, he was the only firstborn. <laughs> like he's Pharaoh, he's the king. Like I'm the only firstborn of the Egyptian gods. And now you're telling me an entire nation is God's firstborn? Yeah, he's pretty ticked. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Indeed, God does give Pharaoh a warning. And indeed, ultimately, this will come to pass. Let my first son go or your first sons are in danger. Which leads us to our third point. For us to gain strength in God's call, for us to gain strength in the Lord and His perspective, which we can't fully grasp. We need to accept that our God is gracious. We need to accept that our God is holy, but here our God is just. We have to accept that our God is just. He is consistently, He is consistently just. God in this moment is providentially rescuing and purifying his people while also punishing evil. God is holy, and let us not forget that everything he does is perfect. So if the last point was hard, grip your Bibles a little tighter. Verse 27, I mean 21. Nope. 24. Even, even I can't find the verse, I'm afraid. Here it comes. At the lodging place, on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Who in the world is the him here? Because if it's Pharaoh, like I'm down with that. Like if it's some bandit breaking into the camp, like come on God, drop him dead. But if this is Moses right now, my brain and my heart can hardly take this. By the way, raise your hand if you remember this part of the story in Sunday school. Good for you, because I do not remember this. When's the last time you saw the pastor come on, get up to the platform and be like, hey, I got an exciting passage of scripture that I want to draw your attention to. God is going to kill his servant Moses, drop him dead. Now go in peace. <laughs> I mean, for real, any standing preachers right now who want to take this one? All I can see is green. Like my perspective is so limited on this. So far be it for me to be like, well, here's exactly what was on God's mind. Come with me, if you will. 
But what I do know is this, God is just. Our God is just. And God will take care of all sin. God will discipline those he loves. God will sanctify you to become more like the image of Jesus. Our God will not stand passively by while sin goes on, especially objective, blatant sin. So clearly there's some kind of sin in Moses' life. Like, so where did the sin happen? Last time I checked, like he was told to take the staff, throw it on the ground put his hand in his coat, do all this stuff. Are you telling me that God called Moses while in a state of sin? Yes. Are you telling me that God was, that God was drawing Moses in his providential divine call toward himself to fulfill his purposes while he still had some rust in the tank? Yes. Our God is constantly gracious. His ways we can't understand. But just like Jacob, just like Jacob here, God won't be able to use Moses until he wrestles him down. And Moses fully submits himself before the Lord. Listen, God is going to call you, but it's going to mean you being courageous to take the step of faith and getting your life right. That happens in the power of the Holy Spirit. That happens in the power of God. It's not a strength you can muster up. Notice, it's God now pressing upon Moses. You see, responding to the call of God is a courageous thing. It's not all loftiness and butterflies. It's going to mean, it's going to mean taking a heart deep look at your own heart and thanking God for the salvation that you have in Jesus Christ, but also saying, yes, God, I know it's going to mean taking this step of obedience. I know it's going to mean turning from this sin. Is God calling your heart to obedience in some area? For the last three weeks, God's, I've been saying, God's calling you, God's calling you, God's calling you. And you're like, yeah, but if you only knew about this sin. I know that's the one that God wants to deal with right now. What I want you to notice here is the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. God was 100% calling Moses, 100% set to use Moses. And God in this moment was 100% set to put him to death for his sin. That's what you got to get your head around. We have to get our hearts around this. God 100% will use us, and God will 100% come and deal with the sin in our lives. The bottom line is God is just. The bottom line is the wages of sin is death. The bottom line is this. Moses is living in sin. Now, where in the world did the sin come from? Let's take a look. Someone else want to read? (laughs) Then Zephora, that's the wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are the bridegroom of blood to me. Say weird. No, like say weird. Don't let me hanging. Say weird. Guys, 
perspective. Like culturally, religiously, like we don't get this. But what you got to get is that Moses, as a Hebrew, Moses as a Jew, Moses being called by Yahweh was in a covenantal relationship with God. And part of this covenant was this, you shall be circumcised on the eighth day. And so shall your sons be circumcised on the eighth day. And here we have Moses responding to God's call, knowing, knowing, knowing that there was an area of his life that hadn't been tended to or dealt with. Here it seems that God is anxious and ready to receive God's graciousness. And oh yes, oh God, be holy before me. And oh God, take out the evil Pharaoh. But would you leave my sin alone? Genesis 17 says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in your flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Verse 14 of the same passage. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Got it? God is just. God keeps his word. And in that moment, he's worthy of death. In this moment, if you haven't bent your knee to Jesus, you're worthy of death. And even if you have, we were still worthy of death. Oh, but by the grace of God, he's intervened. Oh, praise God that he has those who intervene. Oh, praise God that Moses' wife had sense about her in this moment. Oh, praise God that he is the first cause of all things. Oh, praise God that once again he raised up a female in the story to get things set. Sephora took a flint and she did what she did. And so God let him alone. And so God let him alone. And so God let him alone. Oh my word, that sin that you've been carrying, that sin that you are afraid to deal with, that sin that is keeping you from responding to God. Oh, just stop and think about this moment. He complied, he confessed. She did what she was supposed to do and God let him alone and he let him live and he will do the same for you. That's the point. Our God is gracious. When we are in sin, God is 100% in his justice set on our obliteration. But because of Jesus Christ, he then constrains himself to 100% forgiveness because Jesus Christ's blood was applied to our account. And here you have the blood of the foreskins who made provision, provision of faith and security and redemption over Moses. And here too, the son, the, the blood of Moses' sons saved him. And so now are we saved by the blood of God's son, Jesus Christ. Come on, see Christ in the text. This is grace. This is how justice, this is how God is able to hold all of his attributes in tension and he works out his will to his purpose. Oh, Christian, oh, unbeliever, go ahead and fight it or bow down and experience the grace that is to come.
We can make our excuse and live in our sin, or we can see the grace of God as clear as day. And we can assume this, that God is constantly faithful, point four. That our God is constantly faithful, verse four. He will always keep his word. And the team is going to come, and point four is going to act as a conclusion for us. And so watch, how gracious is God? And the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. By the way, where's Aaron? I don't know. Maybe Egypt? Probably Egypt? God goes and he gets him. If he is in Egypt, he's got a long journey ahead of him down to the mountain to meet Moses. What a step of faith this is by Aaron to go. I wonder if there was a burning bush on his end. I don't know. And so he went and met him at the mountain of God. I wonder if Moses had a conversation with his parents before they left. I don't know. So Moses' brother goes. So he met him at the mountain of God and he kissed him and there's this brotherly embrace. Oh, what a moment. Oh, from death to death, the community within the family of God. And, and so Moses told Aaron all of the words of the Lord which he had said him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then <laughs> Moses and Aaron went and he gathered up all of the elders of all of the people of Israel. And Mo guess who, look, look, look. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. God's keeping his word. He's continually faithful. Oh, he's gracious. Oh, he's holy. Oh, he's just. Oh, he's faithful. And he spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And he did all the signs, staff on the ground, snake, hand in the coat, back in the coat. It's healed again. Oh, the drops of blood upon the ground. Oh, the people looked on and they believed. And when they heard the Lord, when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, think about it. It has been some 400 years since the people have heard the word of God. It's been 400 years since God has reached out to them in a call. Does that number 400 ring a bell for you? 400 years they waited in silence and in darkness and in captivity and all of a sudden a voice pierced out of the darkness, out of a burning bush came the call of God. Redemption is coming. Redemption is coming. Redemption is coming. Does this story sound familiar that the firstborn sons are going to be, an edict is going to come for them to be killed? And the people believed. When they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, listen, listen, that he heard their cry, that he saw their affliction, that he remembered his promises, what did they do? They bowed their hearts and they worshiped. And that's not a point that I need to unpack. That is a point that you must be obedient to respond to. And so the team's going to come and we're going to lay our perspective at the feet of the one who has the ultimate perspective, the one who is above it all. We believe it. 
to the best of our ability we have seen. And today we lay it down at the foot of Christ's cross. Father, we come now to sing back worship to you, even as your children did so many years ago. Father, we come, your voice having pierced the darkness of our day, you having sent Jesus Christ to shed his blood for the redemption of our sins. God, we want to humble ourselves now. We thank you for your graciousness to us. Those whom you've called, you will clear the way. God, we, we want to praise you for your justice and how you will deal with sin, but oh God, how you've made provision, how you poured out your justice and your wrath upon your own son, that through the shedding of blood, we could be saved. Oh God, how we bask in your holiness, your perfection, God, we trust your faithfulness now. Help us to respond in obedience to that which we've heard. Help us to sing our praises back to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.